keep moving forward. Uh, that movie, Meet the Robinsons, was a 2007 Disney release. And it was made in large part as a nod to Walt Disney and the ethos that he tried to instill in his early company uh, with the futuristic mindset and an idea that he would exemplify by the phrase that he used, keep moving forward. And I love Disney. I love all things Disney. I love going to the parks. I love the movies. Now that I'm a parent, I especially appreciate the amount of content that they generate that keeps the little ones engaged and entertained. And I think the reason I love Disney so much is that I myself am just a large five-year-old. I'm a large kid, and I'm okay with that. You know, so I want you to imagine, imagine if you can, five-year-old Eli. I'm Eli. I'm the new discipleship minister here. Uh, imagine me at five. It's not hard. All you have to do is wooly-willy style, draw the hair that's on my face back up on the top of my head where it was supposed to be originally, and you'll have me at five years old. And I'm at my grandma's house in Seward, Nebraska. Anybody? Yeah, Seward. Right. All right. The 4th of July capital of Nebraska. Right. There's not a lot to do in Seward. There's not a lot to do at my grandma's house either, but around the corner, just around the corner, is my cousin's house, and they have a brand new video game system that I would love to play. I'm not going to tell you what it was because it'll give away my age. Well, I'll say it rhymes with Pintendo, but that's all I'm going to say. So I go to my mom and my dad, and I say, Mom and Dad, can I go to my cousin's house and play Pintendo? And they say, well, do you know how to get there? And I had been there before. We're talking a few hundred feet, really, in a small town just around the corner, and they said, all you have to remember is you just go down to the next street and take a left, and the house is right there. So I leave the house, and I'm rehearsing in my head. Okay, go to the next street, take a left, the house is right there. Go to the next street, take a left. Ooh, what's that? Famous last words for a five-year-old. Ooh, what's that? There was a snake on the sidewalk as I'm walking. I'm not making this up just to fit in with the scripture reading for the day. Although really, like, that's the first, you know, welcome to hope, your first Sunday preaching. Talk about snakes. All right. There was a snake on the sidewalk, and I've never seen a snake in person as a five-year-old, but because I'm a five-year-old boy, I want to pick this thing up and hold it in my hands. It's a, we're talking a garter, green little garter snake, no, no danger really. They do have teeth, as I was soon to find out, because even though I was five and I'd never seen a snake before, I had instinctually the understanding that the business end is the face, so I pick it up by its tail, which you're not supposed to do, because it didn't like it, it proceeded to curl up its own body and bite me right on the finger. Immediately, the next street over, take a left, the house is right, that's just out of my brain. I panic, I throw this thing to the ground, and for some reason I started running. I start running and, and crying, and I'm running, and I'm crying, and I'm running, and I'm crying, and all of a sudden I look around, and I don't even know where I am anymore. Nothing looks familiar. I have run and cried so long and so far, I didn't know what direction or how many blocks I'd covered. I was lost. I had taken a bad situation, and by the way that I responded to it, I had made it so much worse. Have you ever done that before? Has that ever happened to you? Have, have you faced a crisis in your life or, or even a minor snake bite, but, but your reaction sent it from bad to worse? 
Because that's where we're at with, with Paul this morning, the Apostle Paul. We're, we're still in our summer series, the Summer of Acts. This is the last week of that series as we wrap up what we're talking about, the life of uh, the Apostle Paul, the ministry of the early church, how the church got started. And we have to back up a little bit because this snake bite incident really isn't even the worst part that happened. It was like a terrible cherry on top of a really bad couple of years. So we need to back up in Paul's life and find out how we got here to see what Paul is up to. So Paul's goal was to get to Rome. He felt like at the end of his ministry, he'd planted churches all over this region with his team. He wanted to get to Rome in Italy because that was the center of Western civilization at that time. And he felt like if he could establish the church there and get it growing and and thriving, then that would be a platform for him to continue to do ministry up into the continent of Europe. And so he wants to go to Rome, but Christianity is still centered in Jerusalem with the original disciples. Uh, Peter, James, and John are still there leading the church. And so Paul decides, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem to touch base with those guys, to pray about it, to let them know the plan. Well, he was there for about a week, and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem have Paul arrested and brought before the Roman government to stand trial because they felt threatened by what the Christian church was doing. That movement they felt was a threat to their religion and their way of life. So they have him arrested. Now, what Luke is doing here, Luke, who wrote the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts to be companions to each other. And I say wrote, meaning God inspired to write these things down. He wrote in Luke, Jesus getting arrested by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and standing trial before the Roman government. And then he writes Paul getting arrested in Jerusalem by Jew- Jewish leaders to stand trial before the Roman government. And he's doing that So that we who are reading this will recognize and acknowledge what Paul is doing is a continuation of the ministry that Jesus started, that Paul is spreading the gospel of Christ to the world, and that's what he's about. The difference is, Paul was a Roman citizen as well. Unlike Jesus, who they could just beat and execute, Paul, as a Roman citizen, had rights. As a Roman citizen in that time, you had a right to a fair trial. And and kind of how our judicial system works now, if if you didn't get a decision at a lower court, you could keep making appeals up the system. And at that time, you could make your appeal to Caesar, which is what Paul wants to do, because that'll get him to Rome. So he's standing trial at a local governorship in Caesarea, just outside of Jerusalem, with a governor named Felix. Now, Felix is not super popular. The locals don't like him, the Bible tells us. But he thinks that he can gain some popularity points by just leaving Paul in jail for two years. He'll hear his case, but he won't judge it. He won't won't make a ruling. He's just going to leave Paul sitting in jail for two years. The Bible covers this in a matter of a few verses. Paul was in jail for two years. I think just because it happened so much, Paul was just in jail a lot. And here he is again for two years with no judgment. Finally, Felix leaves office and Festus takes over as governor of this region and he retries Paul's case. Here's Paul give his testimony again that he's not breaking any laws. He's establishing the Christian movement. He's planting churches. There's nothing against the law of what he's doing. And Festus, the new governor, says, okay, Paul, we're going to put you on a boat and send you to Italy where you will have your case heard by Caesar. So they stick him on a boat. And this is, this is the track that they took. They ended up in the southern coast of what is now, this is Turkey now, and they end up on that southern coast to switch ships to a very large prison ship, probably about 250 people on board, and they take off again. Now, they try to convince the captain of this ship, hey, it's the winter time and it's not really the time for sailing. Bad weather and all that. The captain doesn't care. He's going to sail off anyway and try to make it, 
Well, immediately they run into this giant storm. The Bible tells us that there is a storm that lasts for two weeks while they're out to sea in this boat. A huge storm, and it's just knocking this boat around. And they start throwing overboard all their cargo. They start throwing overboard all of their extra equipment. So we're talking sails and ropes and whatever else they can do to lighten the load. They end up at the end of these two weeks, basically the shell of a boat floating around, barely able to steer it, and they're worried that they're going to sink. Paul has this vision where God says, you're not going to sink. Everybody is going to live if you trust me. And Paul, not really known for his bedside manner, says, take courage, for I believe in God. But we will be shipwrecked on an island. That's super encouraging, Paul. That's what happened. They see this land off in the distance. It turns out to be the island of Malta. They run into it. Their boat breaks apart and they're shipwrecked. And that's where our story picks up at the beginning of Acts 28 where the local islanders, feeling compassion for this giant group of people, light a fire on the beach to help them warm up and dry off. And Paul, among all those people, is the one that gets bit on the hand by a poisonous snake. Now, you think you've had a bad day. You think you've had a bad couple of weeks or a bad couple of years. Here is Paul, two years in in prison for no reason and no trial. Two weeks in a giant storm out at sea, and now bitten by, the hand, bitten by a poisonous snake on his hand. If that were me, I probably would have called it a day. I'm like, that's, I'm good now. You guys can take over from here. If, if I were Paul, I might have even said, I'm going to call it a career. He spent his, like most of the last number of years planting churches and doing very successful ministry. The entire region was being evangelized. Might have just said, well, maybe God's telling me to slow down. You know, this is a nice island off the south coast of Turkey, except for the snakes, it might be a good place to retire. That's not what he does. Paul is so formed in his character and so resolute in what God has told him to do that he literally shakes off this problem and he continues on. He perseveres in ministry. And he doesn't let this knock him off course and he doesn't even really let it phase him. He continues on to Rome, and that church gets established. And all of us are here because largely those early apostles didn't give up the mission that Jesus had sent them on. And that, I, I want my life to be like that. I want to be like that. When, 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 when storms come in my life and when snake bites happen and when, when my ship gets wrecked, I want my character to be so formed in my relationship with Jesus that nothing can knock me off track. I want to be like that. But I'm not. I am prone to give up. And I am prone to a lot of other things that are not what I see there. And so how do we do this? How do we respond to those situations, to those things that come up in our lives? And there are a lot of them. Many external things. You know, last week we talked all about work. Well, maybe you find out that you're going to lose your job. How are you going to respond to that? You know, it's, it's back to school season, leaving for college. Maybe you fail your midterm this semester, but there's the whole rest of the semester ahead of you. How are you going to respond You find out you're having trouble at home with your spouse or your kids. What's your response going to be? In society over the weekend, we're facing this giant cultural storm of racism and violence. And how is the Christian community supposed to respond to that? Maybe it's not even external. For, For me, maybe like a lot of you, I struggle with a lot of internal issues. A lot of things where I'll, you know, something bad will happen and I'll start to speak negatively about myself. Do you ever go through that? And all of a sudden, internally, you've, you've snowballed into this giant mental catastrophe that overtakes you. It can be internal. 
What is that thing for you that you would like to overcome in order to persevere on your course and in your Christian life? So that's what I want to look at today. And I think I see here, not only in this situation, but in Paul's ministry and in Scripture, some tools that I feel like we can take away from this morning as we wrap up this series that will help form in us this type of response when these things come our way. Three tools that I see. So the first tool I want to talk about that I see here is don't panic. Don't turn to your neighbor and say, don't panic. Don't start freaking out and running around. When I got bit by that snake, that was my first mistake. Now, granted, I was five years old, but I panicked. A couple months ago, I was reading through some news articles online, just scrolling on Facebook to see what was going on. And maybe some of you saw this too. There was a soccer match that was happening in Italy, actually, two of the rival big clubs. And this wasn't even at the soccer match. They had set up a large outdoor viewing party in a plaza in Turin, where the Olympics were a couple, couple years ago. Large outdoor viewing party where they were all going to get together and watch it on the big screen, the big soccer game. A few thousand people had turned out for this. It was tightly packed and crowded, and a couple of people in the middle started to panic. They didn't really know why, but it was so crowded that a couple people around them started to panic. And before long, the entire several thousand crowd in this confined plaza started to panic, and a riot broke out, and 1,500 people ended up injured. I I got the news article because it was really interesting what the local officials said about this incident. Uh, The Turin official said in a statement that the crowd, quote, was taken by panic and by the psychosis of a terror attack feeling that a loud noise was caused by attackers. The source of the loud noise that triggered the stampede still remains unclear. Officials said, Italian media has speculated it may have been a firecracker. Now, if you're taking notes, uh, don't set off a firecracker in a crowd. If that's what happened, that's not a good thing. But panic had so overtaken just a few people that it affected hundreds and hundreds more of injuries. Thankfully, no one died, but a lot of people were hurt. A lot of times, we're under the assumption that that our negative responses to situations that happen around us only affect us, right? That if I've had a rough day and I decide I'm going to self-medicate a little bit just to take the edge off, to feel a little bit better, and that's only me, that's only going to affect me, but look around, Who else in your life might be affected by that reaction? Or when there's bad traffic, right, and you start to get that road rage feeling inside of you, and you think, I can just contain this to my car and be a little, you know, ball of fury in my own car. But we all know that that's how a lot of traffic accidents end up happening. Your reactions to situations influence a lot of people around you. And if you panic, people will be influenced, but they'll also see that. You know, for those of us who follow Jesus, people are watching how we respond to situations to see if we really mean what we say when we say, I trust Jesus. All the things that we just sang about, that we believe that Jesus is big enough, bigger than our problems, people are wondering, do you really believe that by the way that you respond to these situations? People are watching, and they want to know, hey, this person says they trust Jesus, but I can see by the way they live, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But don't, saying don't do something is not a tool. I know that. So just saying don't panic is not a tool. What can we do instead of panic? I would say this. We can pray about it. James 5.13 says, Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Now, I know probably a lot of you are starting to roll your eyes and think, Man, that's such a cliche. Right? What a pastory thing to say. Well, I'll pray about it. Because we do it all the time. We hear that a lot. Right? I went to the doctor and the doctor, Well, I'll pray for you. I'm having trouble at school and I don't, I'll pray for you. Let's pray about it. 
It's almost something we say in Christian circles as a placeholder when we don't really have the words to say in the situation. We just say, I'll pray for you. And maybe we don't do it at all. I heard a story of a mother once, uh, a mom who had three sons, and it was her desire, her goal for her boys, simply that they would follow Jesus, that they would live godly lives. And if you're a parent, I think you can agree, that's a good goal. And, and she did her best to, to raise them up that way. She wanted her three sons to follow Jesus. One of those boys was about to go off to school, to college, and he explicitly said, I don't want to do that. He was super bright, all the talent in the world, genius-level intellect, and he explicitly said, I don't want to follow Jesus with my life. In fact, I want to study to become a lawyer so that I can make a lot of money and be very successful. Now, there's nothing wrong with studying to become a lawyer, and there's nothing wrong with having a good income, I hear. But his explicit purpose, he said, I want to do this. I want to be so successful so that when I reach a certain level of success, I can do whatever I want. I can, I can pursue any pleasure, any passion. I can take advantage of, of whatever situation in my community. And he especially wanted to have the best food, the best drink, the best possessions, and let's say the, the best female companionship. Those were his goals. And his desire for success was bound up in those things. Now, his mother, learning about this, because he ended up achieving that goal as a young adult, she was justifiably concerned with the future of her son, whom she wanted simply to follow Jesus. Now, for a lot of us who are parents in the room, that seems like the right time to hit the panic button, to interfere, to intervene, to get involved. And that's not what she did. She said, I believe that God is bigger than my son's issues. I believe that God is stronger than my son's strong will, and I am going to start praying every day that God would change his life. And again, it seems cliche, but that's what she did. She started praying every single day for 17 years that God would change her son's life, and he did. After 17 years of daily faithful prayer, and this son going through all the highs and lows and ultimately running into the consequences of his bad decisions and, and eventually meeting people in the church who helped him grow and introduced him to what a relationship with Jesus is really like, he gave his life to Christ. And when this young man, Augustine, who would later become Bishop Augustine, who would later become Saint Augustine, gave his life to Jesus after those 17 years of prayers from his mother, God would use him to shape the trajectory of Christianity forever. A lot of the ideas that we still have theologically about scriptural interpretation come from Augustine, a powerful and successful Christian leader. But he would write late in his life in a book that he wrote called The Confessions, sort of an autobiography, and I'm paraphrasing here. He would say, if it weren't for the 17 years of faithful prayers from his mother about his life, he doesn't know where he would have ended up. That there wouldn't have been a Saint Augustine if there hadn't been a Saint Monica, his mother, praying for him. And that's the power of prayer. And I think often we miss that. As Christians, we miss that because we, we either give up on prayer too quickly or we simply don't start at all. I don't know about you, but I don't really recall the last time I spent every day for 17 years praying that God would do something. And maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're in a place where, where those snake bites and those storms and those shipwrecks are starting to well up panic inside of you and you're about to, to hit that panic button and to, I don't even know what, start praying. 
After every service here at Hope, we have prayer partners who meet at this cross, and they would love to pray with you about what's going on in your life to help you start investing in that prayer habit. Maybe nothing's going on with you right now. Maybe it's smooth sailing right now. That's the perfect time to start developing a prayer habit so that your first response when something hits is to go to God about it and to pray. So don't panic, pray. The next tool that I see here in Paul's story is this. Don't worry. Don't, now this hits me personally because I'm a worrier. Are there any other worriers? I'm worried that there's no other worriers. Okay, great. So we've got some other worriers. I don't have to worry that I'm not the only one. I think when, the Bible has a lot to say about worry. It comes up a lot as a topic in Scripture, and I think that's because God knew when he made us that, that we human creatures were going to be a worrying bunch. That just seems to be part of our nature, our natural response to worry. And here's something that Jesus said about worry in Matthew 6. He said, don't worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? And let's read this last line together here on the screen. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? I mean, that hits me because that's my response. What are we supposed to do about that? Because I think what this speaks to is that in our worry... What we're saying to God, ultimately, is I don't trust you. That's what this kind of worry is. I'm not talking about the kind of worry that's mild concern, okay? I'm not talking about, uh, you know, if you left your coffee maker on this morning and you're concerned about that, or if your keys are locked in your car, or if you left Timmy at soccer practice. Well, maybe you should worry about that. <laughs> worry about that. I'm not talking about those concerns. I'm talking about the kind of all-consuming, obsessive worry. You know what I mean? The kind of worry that keeps you up at night. When we worry like that, what we're telling God is, I don't trust you. I don't trust the things that I sang in worship. I don't trust that you're bigger than my issues. I don't trust that you're more powerful than the powers around me. I don't trust that you love me. I don't trust that you have a plan. I don't trust that you care for me. And I don't trust that you're God. That's what our worry says to God. And in our worry, what can happen a lot of times is we end up making hurried decisions Right? In our worry, we start rushing around and trying to fix things on our own. So I would say, again, don't do something is not a tool. I would say instead of worrying, wait. We can wait on God. This is something you might have heard before. People saying, well, I'm going to wait on the Lord. Or when it says in the Bible, wait on the Lord. What does that mean? How do we do that? Do we have any uh, campers here? People who like to camp outdoor? I'm not talking like Jester Park style camping, which that's my speed. I've done the cabins at Jester Park. I love me some AC and indoor plumbing. That's good camping. I mean like really roughing it out in the woods. This will look familiar to you. So I pulled this off of the U.S. Forest Service website on a page titled, What to Do When You Get Lost. This is the authoritative advice for hikers and campers if you get lost. As soon as you realize you may be lost, stop, stay calm, stay put. Panic is your greatest enemy. Okay, so we're on the right track. It continues by saying this, think, it'll probably continue by saying this, here we go, think, go over in your mind how you got to where you are, do not move at all until you have a specific reason to take a step. That just seems like good life advice, not just for when you're lost camping, do not move at all until you have a specific reason to take a step. In our worry, again, we make these snap decisions and we we fly off the handle and do all kinds of things that, that again, take our, our bad situation and make it worse because we've responded 
too quickly, and we haven't taken the time to pause and to consider where we are and where God has us. That's ultimately how my, my silly little snake bite story ended up. I, I had run and cried so far, nothing was really wrong with me. But I was lost. I decided I'm just going to sit down on the side of the road on this curb and wait. Eventually, uh, a retired sheriff's deputy driving by saw me sitting on the side of the road, and I think because he's a good person, but also his life in law enforcement said, hey, that's not right, stopped and said, what's your name and what's wrong? And I said, my name is Eli, and I'm lost, and a snake bit my finger. And because it's small town Nebraska, he said, I know your grandma. I'll take you home. I'd stopped running around long enough to have help come. Now, that's, that's a very small, silly story, but um, it speaks to, I think, what, what we have available to us when we lift up things to God in prayer. Often in our situations, in our crises, in our shipwrecks, in our storms, prayer sounds something like this, God, I have a problem and I need you to fix it. I'll get back to you later about how you're going to fix my problem. And then maybe we'll check in later. God, it's still broken, and I need you to fix it. I have some suggestions about how you could do it. How often in prayer, though, do we wait? Maybe even listen for what God might say. If that's where you are here at at Hope Ankeny, we have a, a prayer class coming up starting in September on listening prayer. What an idea. That prayer is a conversation between this great and powerful God who gives us access to Him might actually speak into our situation and have something to say about direction, about what's going on. Because it also allows something else, too. When we wait in prayer, when we wait for God to to speak into a situation, it does something else. See, as humans, we're biologically wired to avoid pain, right? When something hurts, our nervous system says, that's bad, don't do that and avoid it in the future. Well, spiritually, I think it can actually be the opposite a lot of times. Spiritually, when we experience pain, God might actually have something to say about that. He might actually be using that to teach us something about who we are and where we need to go, a course correction or something we might need to do differently. He uses it to teach us, to form our character. Uh, This is what it says about waiting on God in the book of Lamentations. So Lamentations chapter 3, it says, The Lord is good to those who depend on Him, to those who search for Him. So it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. Let them sit alone in silence beneath the Lord's demands. Let them lie face down in the dust, for there may be hope at last. For no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love, for he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. Mark Batterson, who is a a pastor in Washington, D.C., sums up that idea by saying this, sometimes it takes a shipwreck to get us where God wants us to go. Has that ever been true for you? I know in my life that there have been moments of, of shipwrecks, there have been crises and tragedies and sorrows and trials, and in the moment, I really hated going through that. I didn't like the pain that it produced, and my instincts to flee and to run away and to worry took over, but looking back, I can say that I'm grateful for those things because God used them to bring me to where I am today. That without those lessons, without that character-forming stuff that absolutely has to happen, we don't get to where we're supposed to go. 
And I think that's where Paul ultimately got in his life. He had experienced tremendous tragedy. He had experienced so many shipwrecks and so many crises that his instinctual response was no longer to worry or to panic. It was to say, what's God doing in this situation? I'm going to wait and see what he shows me. And that's the kind of character that we can form when we wait on God to speak into our situation. So don't worry, wait. And our third tool is this, don't quit. Let's watch this together. Theodore Roosevelt famously said this, failure is not falling down, but refusing to get back up. One of the common misconceptions about living a Christian life is that when I give my life to Jesus, that all my problems are solved, that there shouldn't be any more difficulties because I believe in God, that he'll take care of everything, that it'll be smooth sailing. That's just not true. You know, if you look at Paul's life, the life that we studied through this summer, You see, a a man who, before he was Paul, he was Saul, and he was a well-regarded and highly respected leader of the Jewish people, prestige and success. After he encounters Jesus and he realizes that that's what he wants to give his life to, he gives up all of that. Not only does he give up his success and his position, he gains persecution, The book of 2 Corinthians, he tells a lot of the things that happened to him. After he gives his life to Jesus, he experiences beatings for his faith, imprisonment on multiple occasions, stonings, being chased out of town. He experienced poverty, homelessness, hunger. This wasn't even the first shipwreck that he experienced. We we learn about three others that he says in, in 2 Corinthians. At a certain point, somebody should have said, Paul, sailing is not your thing. You should just stick to dry ground. But he gives his life to Jesus because he found in Christ, in a relationship with him, something that was worth more than what he had. And he kept going. He persevered in his ministry because he knew that Jesus was with him in those moments of crisis, that Jesus was there. This is something that Jesus said in in John 16. He was not dishonest about the reality of the Christian life. This is Jesus saying, here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Because I have overcome the world. That's what it means to follow Christ. You see, the reality is, as we wrap up this this sermon series on Acts, the book of Acts is still being written. The full title of the book is called The Acts of the Apostles. And an apostle is someone who is sent by God to bear witness to the faith that they have in Jesus, the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And that's you. That's the church. So when you leave here today, what you're doing is you're continuing to write the book of Acts by the way that you live your life in front of other people and demonstrate the hope that you have in him. That like I said, people are watching. People want to know if as Christians we really mean it when we say that I trust Jesus. I believe that he has overcome the world. I believe that he is with me in my trials, that he is teaching me, showing me something. And God has given you a ministry context, a mission field to do that in. If it's your neighborhood or your home, your workplace, people are wondering and they're seeing you if you really mean it when you say that you trust God. By the way that you respond to the crisis situations. And they'll wonder... As when something comes up in your life, when one of those storms and shipwrecks come and you respond with hope and with joy and thankfulness and expectation that God might do something, they'll wonder, 
What is that? What is that hope that you have? And you can tell them, it's my relationship with God. So I want to encourage you today as we, as we go and finish our time to keep writing the book of Acts as you go. And we can show the world together the hope we have in Jesus who has overcome everything that we will ever experience. Would you pray with me? God, we're so thankful for the time that you've given us here today, not only to study your word, but to be with our Christian family, supporting each other, being lifted up. And I pray that you would help each one of us to be encouragers as we walk this life together, experiencing the shipwrecks and the storms, God, knowing that you have overcome them all and that we have each other as support. Give us the strength and courage going forward, God, to be your apostles, to be your sent ones into this world that is broken, that is hurting, that is experiencing all kind of pain and division, not the way that you intended it to be. Help us to be agents of your peace and your love and your mercy and to show the world the hope that we have in your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.